kind of want to begin by telling you about what happened in the year 1734. In Northampton, Massachusetts, there was a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards basically started the first revival in America. It's known in history books as the First Great Awakening. He just describes this as a small town that he preached in, and his definition, if you will, of revival goes like this. He said, It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to a lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. In that little town of 1,100 people, 300 souls were saved in just six months. That's an amazing spark, if you will. Five, uh, similar revivals broke out in over 100 towns around Jonathan Edwards' church. Five years later in Philadelphia, George Whitefield fueled the fire with his dramatic preaching. It's estimated that George Whitefield preached to 80% of America's 900,000 colonists that were in America at that time. The second Great Awakening took place about 50 uh, years later, 1800 to 1850, and the number of Christians over that span of time increased by tenfold. The second Great Awakening. Following that, in 1857, there was a man named Jeremiah Lanfear, and he had a burden for businessmen in New York City. So he started a lunchtime prayer meeting. First week, six people showed up. Six businessmen. The next week, 20. The next week, 40. By the time it was said and done, every church in New York City had to open their doors at lunchtime because... A million people came to Christ during that time. More revivals took place in 1875, led by Dwight L. Moody from Chicago. Then in 1905, began Billy Sunday's preaching. He preached to over 100 million people. Post-World War II, the 50s, you had revivals led by Bill Bright and the Campus Crusade for Christ. And of course, Billy Graham and his crusades in every major city all over the world. Then in the 60s and 70s came the Jesus movement. Those hippies found Jesus. They got high on the Holy Spirit instead. Anyone here get saved during the Jesus movement? At least one. In the 90s came Henry Blackaby, led thousands to Christ in planting churches all over Canada, and um, then there was the Promise Keepers Revivals. Anyone ever attend a Promise Keeper Revival? Men, over 5 million men attended those. But now here we are in 2021. And it doesn't seem like we've had a real revival in a good 20, maybe 30 years. So I asked myself the question, could a revival take place today, right here in St. Clair Shores? And I think it can because when you study a revival, when you look back and say, what, what, what was it that caused this revival? Of course, 
God moves, his spirit moves as he chooses, his sovereign grace and mercy. But there is something that is significant at the beginning of every revival. Every revival begins in a person's heart. It begins in the Christian. The Holy Spirit moves when the Christian repents and prays. And probably the most famous verse, if you will, for revivals is 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's Solomon's prayer all those years ago that's still being prayed today in hopes of a revival. Here it is, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, that's us, are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God says, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Will you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, I know and we all know that you are a great and awesome God and that your Holy Spirit moves sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, sometimes in a way that it's unexplainable, unbelievable. But God, we know it's true. Father, I pray that right here in our community, we would see a revival. We would see a deep hunger for your word, for your love. We would see conviction that would drive people to come to this place to hear the truth so the truth can set them free. Father, I pray that this revival will begin in our hearts, that we will be a church that has a burden to pray, to not stop praying, to pray without ceasing, to see a revival right here in our midst. I pray this in Jesus' name. And this church said, Amen. Amen. So about 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked the question for the first time. The question that he asked is the title of the message. Who do you say that I am? These are the words of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? You know, when Jesus walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, that was the question on everybody's mind. I mean, all the religious leaders, all the common folks, if you will, wanted to know, who's Jesus? Who is this guy that we hear all about, that we've seen do miracles? Who, who is he? I was watching an episode of The Chosen yesterday and there was the Roman guards walking with another guy and they were having the same conversation. Like, I want to know who this guy is. I've seen him heal a man that was blind from birth. I've seen heal a guy who couldn't walk for 40 years. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Well, I would tell you that if a revival was to happen today, if a revival broke out here in St. Clair Shores, there would be people lined up outside of our door to come in here to get the answer to that question. Everybody would want to know the answer to that question. We would have to hold service every day of the week, probably in the morning and in the evening, because there would not be enough room in the churches that we have in St. Clair Shores to hear the truth. But even though we're not in the midst of a revival today, even though we, we don't see it, we don't see, you know, standing room only, here at Life of Purpose. I believe God is still at work. I believe He is always drawing people to Himself. 
And I think people are still going to church with a conviction inside of them. They're broken inside, and they just want to get closer to God. In fact, I think there's some here today that might have come because you just want to get closer to God. You just, there's something inside of you that you know nothing else can help but God's Word, God's people, the church, the Holy Spirit. And so I'm telling you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad, I think you're in the right place. I know you're in the right place. Because there's some things that this world cannot help you with. And it's that deep yearning inside of you that wants to know who is Jesus? Who is God to me? And I want to help you get closer to him. This passage that we're looking at today in the Gospels is a very interesting passage in many respects. It's a longer passage, and I'm going to work hard to get us through it in a reasonable amount of time, um, because I know everybody is excited about the lions, probably, or maybe not. I don't know. What does it take? One Sunday to not get excited about the lions? I hate to do that and say that, but it's kind of how it goes. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or actually, not John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four Gospels share the same story about Jesus Jesus is at the point in his life where he's about one year from going to the cross, and his disciples have been hanging with him for two and a half years, and it's quiz time. (laughs) Jesus loved to give those little quizzes. And this is a two-question quiz in this passage, and you're going to find out that in this passage, these two questions that, that come up are important questions for us to answer too. They're deep personal questions. And you can say all you want to say to somebody else, but it's between you and God how you answer these questions. It's interesting that when you preach, when I preach expositorily verse by verse, when I expose the scripture verse by verse and I go through the gospels as we're going through this year, that the different topics come up. I don't need to preach topically. I know a lot of churches do that, and I don't need to do that because the topics will present themselves. In fact, a few weeks ago I was asked this question What does it mean when Jesus called himself the Son of Man? That question came up. And I answered the question, but now here we are just a few weeks later, and the scripture that we're at right now is going to answer that question. That's what happens when you teach verse by verse through the books of the Bible. You get the whole counsel of God. You don't just get the feel-good topics that some Churches like to just talk about year after year. Okay, it's February, let's talk about love. You know, it's, and you get what I'm saying. So, here we are, verse 13. I'm going to talk, use Matthew 16. If you have your Bible with you, Matthew 16 is where we're at. And if you need a Bible, um, if you're a guest, back by the TV in the back there, there are some free Bibles, free coffee mug. Definitely want to have that start your day. Nothing better than drinking your coffee from a Life of Purpose mug. They're free. I'm not, you know, well, I'm not selling them, all right? All right, so, um, but yeah, free Bibles back there donated uh, by a good uh, friend of ours and uh, uh, loves the gospel. So, here we are, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples the question, who do the people say? 
But this time, he, this is the first question of the two-question quiz. Who, does, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? So he's asking the disciples, you've been listening, you've been paying attention, been talking with other people, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is an interesting term because it's used throughout the Bible. And I'm going to give you a little bit of what, when it's been used. Ezekiel was a prophet around 597 to 574 B.C. When the Jewish people, the Israelites, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, that's when Ezekiel started his ministry. He was exiled to Babylon. So he's in the place of worship for the Jews. It's always been Jerusalem. He gets exiled to Babylon. He's now ministering from Babylon for 23 years. Whenever you read Ezekiel, you'll see over 90 times he's called the Son of Man. God is God. Ezekiel is a Son of Man, meaning he's human. God is God. Ezekiel is the Son of Man, human. Now, at the same time, a contemporary of Ezekiel is Daniel. How many of you love Daniel? You heard those stories, right? Daniel, you know, the, all those great stories of, of Daniel. Well, Daniel had a long ministry. I pray I can have the ministry of Daniel. I mean, he, he was a prophet for all 70 years they were in captivity in Babylon. That's a long ministry. He started before Ezekiel, and he went 40 years after Ezekiel. Now, Daniel uses the term son of man once for sure, not to refer to Ezekiel. He actually says it, and I looked it up to make sure. He says it long after Ezekiel was done with his ministry. He says in Daniel 7, and I don't have this verse up on the screen for you, but he says in Daniel 7 that he will come like the son of man. It was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. There's over 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah and Daniel said this one, he will come like the Son of Man. So when Jesus asked this question to his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? What he's really saying is, who do they say is the coming Messiah? Who's coming to be the Messiah? And their response, verse 14, they heard, they listened. Some say John the Baptist. Well, of course, he would have had to come back from the dead because Herod had him killed. Others say Elijah. Elijah, in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi prophesies that Elijah, the spirit of Elijah would come to prepare the way. And, of course, we know that's who? John the Baptist, right? So that's Elijah, the spirit of Elijah. Well, then they said that Jeremiah could be the coming Messiah, how that plays out, or one of the prophets. Let's just face it, they had their guesses, just like today, you may have heard somebody has a guess of when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus said in the Bible, it says it right next, you will not know the time when I come back. But people have their guesses, they make their claims, and so on. Do you know that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 88 times in the Gospels? 88 times. But there's a difference between Jesus and Ezekiel. Ezekiel calls himself a son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man. He's the epitome 
of humanity because he is the perfect human. Anyone here ever not sinned? Only Jesus can raise his hand. Perfect. Never sinned. Perfectly righteous. He's the only son of man. Well, the disciples know this. So the first question was really kind of a, just a pretest for all the teachers. We love to give pretests, don't we? Not really. But he just gives them this sort of floater question out there, because now here comes the real question. Verse 15, he says to them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter was, seems to be always the spokesperson for the group. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, let me remind you that Jesus, his last name is not Christ. I know we say that, I say that all the time, right? Jesus Christ. And his middle name doesn't start with the letter H, by the way. There are lots of people that like to say Jesus H. Christ. An expletive, if you will, right? I traced it back as far as I could go. Mark Twain in 1847 wrote it out, said that that term, that expression, was used. No one knows what the H stands for. You can guess all you want, all right? But it's really not his name. My point I'm trying to make here is, is that when Jesus walked on this earth, his name was Jesus, or Joshua, really is the name, Bar-Joseph. Bar means son of. You didn't really have a last name. Your last name was your father's first name. You're so-and-so, the son of. So Jesus, Bar-Joseph, the son of Joseph, and of course Mary. That would have been his full name, if you will. But here we see that Peter confesses you're not the son of Joseph, Jesus. You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Or Messiah is another name for Christ. So Jesus points this out, of which, by the way, Jesus um, points out that Peter could never have come up with this on his own. He, no one could have convinced Peter that Jesus was the son of the living God. Who is the only one that can reveal this to Peter? Who is the one that opened Peter's eyes? He was blind, but now he can see. Who did that for Peter? God. God opens our eyes. Do you remember when God opened your eyes? When the light shined through? On my Facebook page this week, uh, my, my, my po on uh, my, whatever you call it, your own profile, I get them all confused now. But I shared a story of a great uh, pastor that I love to read, Pastor Ray Stedman. He shared with an atheist who was stuck in depression. He shared the word with them. They had a meeting. And the atheist was just so depressed, and he shared the word, and he prayed for him, and nothing, nothing really happened. And Pastor Ray said, I don't want to abandon you. I don't want to just send you off. I'll meet with you regularly. I'll share the word of God with you. I'll pray with you in hopes that it will help. Well, they did this for months. For months. Nothing. But then one day, something dawned the light in this man's life. His eyes were open just a little. And Pastor Ray said, well, you, you keep 
you keep memorizing that verse and you keep thinking about that verse and the next thing you know, more and more and more of God's word began to come alive in this man and he saw the truth and the truth brought him out of that depression, gave him hope and he became a Christian. The light will come forth. Our eyes will be open from the Word. And when you see God at work, when you see this happening, you want to join in, and God had some work for Peter to do. Jesus was preparing Peter for his role in the ministry. Verse 18. We're moving. It's not quick, but we're moving. We're at verse 18, and this one's a doozy, let me tell you. I tell you, Jesus said, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Three significant points that Jesus makes in this verse alone. First of all, the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. Let's talk about that. Because this is often misunderstood, often confused. Okay, The rock that Jesus will build his church on. You need to understand here that Jesus was using a little bit of word play. So the, the word play is based on Peter's name. Peter's first name, by the way, was not from birth Peter. It was Simon. That was his name. He calls him that, right? And Jesus gave him sort of a nickname, if you will. He calls him Peter in the Greek, but he also called him Cephas in the Aramaic, Both names mean the same thing. They mean little rock. A little rock. Now, not a pebble. Don't call him Peter Pebbles. That's not who he was. The rock was a little larger than a stumbling stone. So you think of a rock that you would trip over and go a little bigger, and now you got the idea of what Peter's name means. A landscaping rock is what I think of. You know, a nice big landscaping rock. And that was Peter's name. Now, the Greek is Petros. But when Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros, he then says, on this rock I will build my church. He doesn't say, on Petros I will build my church. He uses a different word, Petra. See the word play? You're Petros, but on Petra I will build my church. Petra is a massive rock, like a cliff, like the edge of a cliff, this huge, massive rock. And that's what Jesus will build his church on. And in fact, Peter got this. Peter never thought the church would be built on him. He says, in fact, in 1 Peter 2.6, his own writing. He says, it stands in Scripture, I'm laying in Zion a stone. What kind of stone? A cornerstone. If you're going to build a building, you know a cornerstone is the most important piece to any building. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those are Peter's words. So we should never use verse 18 to say that the church is built on Peter or any successor of Peter. Secondly, Jesus begins talking about his church for the first time in the Gospels, by the way. First time the word church is mentioned, and the church is not a building. 
When you know the word for church, Greek word is ekklesia, it means called out assembly of people. The best translation would have been congregation. But goes back a long ways into German translation and the Reformation and so on, and Kirka, and I, I talked about it a long time ago, so I won't go there again. But Jesus mentions the church for the first time, and it's because he's preparing for after his resurrection, when the church will begin. The church began after Jesus was killed on the cross, dead, buried, and then resurrected. Third thing he mentions, the gates of hell will not prevail. You have no victory over sin unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You can't beat sin unless you have Jesus. You see, Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you when you are not under law but under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, I could spend a whole sermon on. It's that packed with information, but we shall keep moving. Verse 19, Peter is then told by Jesus, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Interesting passage. Maybe it went right over your head, but... I'm going to try to bring it down so you can grasp it. And I fully understand that I am preaching in a community that, for the most part, many people grew up Catholic. I understand that. I grew up that way, baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church by my father's side. And I understand that what I'm about to say, you may not like, but I'm going to give it to you and let you do your own research, okay? The Catholic Church likes to use these two verses to support their claim that the Pope is the successor of Peter and therefore the only church that God recognizes. I will simply tell you the church, church history of which I've looked into does not support this claim. And again, I encourage you to do your own research, but in my studies, the church history of church history it didn't play out that way. Let me, let me help you understand how the Catholic Church began and how all the churches began. Acts 1.8, the disciples are told to be my witness. Jesus said, be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the church spread. In the book of Acts, you see the church is spreading. Christians are making disciples who make disciples. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And over time, there would be elders in the churches, overseers. Sometimes they call them bishops. That's another name for elder or overseer. And they would be bishops over certain areas, communities, big cities. Maybe smaller you know, areas would have you know, other bishops but there were bishops, and all the bishops were basically overseers. There was no, this bishop's bigger than this one, or this one's better than this one. They're all here. They're all elders like me, pastors overseeing the church. But some areas were a little bit bigger in politics and power. Rome was one of them. 
because Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. Rome was, there's a lot of politics going on there. Well, around 300 AD, the leader, Constantine, moved the capital. No more Rome is the capital. Moved it east to Byzantine, which he renamed Constantinople. What do you think happened in Rome? Left it vulnerable, very vulnerable. So the bishop that was there protecting the people did what he thought he should do, and he became more politically minded, if you will, to protect the city. And over time, you have new bishops coming in in that area. Over time, Rome became pretty powerful. They needed to be to protect themselves. And of course, when people are in power, they make rules. And over time, one of those bishops decided, we're going to call the Bishop of Rome the Pope. That's what happened. That's the facts in a nutshell. I only pointed out to say the Pope is not Peter's successor. He doesn't speak the words of God. His original purpose was to oversee the church in that area. And when Jesus said, Peter, here are the keys to the kingdom of heaven, this is what he really meant. I'm not giving you some special power, Peter. I'm giving you a commission, a command, to open the door to heaven, to the kingdom, for all people. And when you read the book of Acts, that's what you see happening. It's a beautiful thing. It starts in Acts 2 with the first church revival. Right? Pentecost is the Jewish holiday, I guess, I don't know if they call it that, but it's the Jewish celebration, that's probably a better word. And all the Jews came from all over, and it was intentional. God left it, brought His Holy Spirit. People, the apostles, spoke in languages that were the people that came from all over the, the world, and they heard the truth about the gospel. And what happened when they heard the truth? They were deeply convicted. I'll read it to you. Peter preached this wonderful sermon, uh, um, and it was um, in the book of Acts in, in chapter 2. Um, it says that, uh, and I know I'm skipping over one verse, I'll come back to Isaiah 22 in a minute, but in verse 37, they heard Peter's first sermon, and it says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And Peter, to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, what do we do? What do we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this Holy Spirit that we receive. And so they did. Some like 3,000 plus people got saved in one day. That's a revival. Now I'll bounce back just for a moment to tell you in Isaiah 22, 22, opening the door, if you will, the keys to... Keys open doors, right? At least they're supposed to. Isaiah 22, 22. Isaiah said, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. There was a man named Eliakim that was given the keys to Jerusalem, the place of worship. It's, it's, a, it's a word picture, if you will, of opening the door to worship. Eliakim was given it. Isaiah prophesied it would happen in the house of David. And it opened it up to God's people. And this is what Peter's doing. He's opening up 
the kingdom to all people. So the Jews were first. Jesus said that, right? The Jews were first. They were God's chosen people from the beginning, and they were first, and they got saved in Acts 2. Many Jewish people became what we call today, when a Jewish person becomes a Christian, we call them Messianic Jews because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And then in Acts 8, Peter was there in Samaria when the Samaritans, who is a half-Jewish, half-Gentile, a mutt, if you will, we would say, but they were half-Jewish, half, and he was there to unlock the door, to open the door to the kingdom of heaven for Samaritans. And then you keep reading and you'll see in Acts 10, Peter opens the door for the Gentiles. At Cornelius' house, all God's people are now invited to join the kingdom of heaven if they believe Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. That's what it means when, Jesus, when Peter's given the keys. It simply means that he was the one who God would use to open the door. He was there when the Jews the Samaritans, and the Gentiles became Christians, received the Holy Spirit. And then, what does it mean to bind and loose on earth? That, that Peter could bind and loose on earth, that doesn't mean Peter gets to pick and choose who goes to heaven and who doesn't. That's not what that means. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 16, you'll get to Matthew 18, and the same words will be used. And it has everything to do with church discipline which we'll get to in a little while. But in church discipline, basically, we, as Christians, as, as church leaders, really, we have to determine, we talked about false teachers last week, if someone is teaching falsely or sinning and not repenting, then we have a responsibility to remove them from the church. The binding and the loosening. Are you still with me? All right. Verse 20, Jesus still had a year to go of ministry, and so he strictly charged his disciples, tell no one that I'm the Christ. Let's keep this under wrap, boys. We're not there yet. However, he kept talking to them that he was going to go and die. Verse 21, he showed his disciples he must go in Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, but on the third day, be raised. Peter, verse 22, took him aside and rebuked him. Is that not laughable? I mean, you have to be like, Peter, come on. But you know what? He was a man, just like we are human, right? And we think we know what's best for God sometimes. And he's telling Peter, this isn't going to happen, or telling Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you. You're not going to die. No, no, no. The Messiah doesn't die. Come on. Well, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Pretty harsh words. You're a hindrance. Your plan is not the right plan. Never presume you know what God's plan is for your life unless you've been in deep prayer and God reveals it to you. One day at a time, I feel like God reveals his plan to us. So many times, I've counseled with people, and they want to know, 
I just want to know God's plan for my life. I just want to know what it is. And a lot of times it has to do with, you know, where to live, who to marry, what job to take. All big decisions, but I'm going to be honest with you, God's number one plan for your life is to know him and trust him every day. I know it's not glamorous and super exciting and God wants me to go live in Guatemala and do this or that. God wants you to know him and trust him every day and make him known. That's his plan for your life. That's the number one. That's got to be number one on your list. That's important. Verse 24 is a verse you should memorize. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The book I asked many of you to read this year is called Not a Fan. Not a Fan. talks all about what it means to really follow Jesus. There's still time to read it before the end of the year. Not a fan. You should read that book. Jesus says, come after me. Follow me. I don't usually ask people if they're Christians. Because that word has so many definitions. Like love. I love you. What does that mean? Lots of definitions. I usually ask people, are you a Jesus follower? Like, are you just a fan of Jesus? Or are you a follower of Jesus? Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. You deny yourself. The word deny, I looked it up, it means to no longer be acquainted with or connected to. Your interests are no longer your interests. They are his interests. That's what it means to deny yourself. And take up your cross does not mean necessarily that you should go be martyred. It means that you are, as Romans 12.1 says, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Live your life every day for God and follow me be a disciple. That's a genuine Christian. Paul... The Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20, our best example in the Bible for one who denied himself and took up his cross. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. If you ever want to know what it means to be a true, genuine Jesus follower, just look at the life of Paul. He was a living sacrifice. Proved that he was a disciple. And you will save, verse 25, you will save your life. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll find it. What will it, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And that's what we see our young people trying to do, isn't it? Just trying to get everything they can out of this world. Lots of people try to live their best life right now and they end up losing it all in the end. They never quite get that peace that they're after. But then there are some people who surrender it all, who follow Jesus, and they have this unexplainable peace. That's what this verse is saying. You want peace in your life? You need peace? You want to be forgiven, full of joy? Follow Jesus. Wrapping it up, verse 27 and 28. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. He will repay each person according to what he has done. Sometimes we look at that and read that, it sounds very negative. I feel like when I read that, it's negative. He will repay each person according to what he has done. 
is I'm, I'm generally a, a, an optimist. The glass is half full usually for me, but I don't know. I read that, and it feels like it's half empty. But it's really not. The, 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 it's the translation there. It's either way. Do good, you'll receive a reward. Right? Don't do good, you'll receive what's coming to you. Okay? It's, it's neutral. Verse 28, I say to you, some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Very confusing. Some think that this is saying that those people in Jesus' day would not die until he returns. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, what he's really saying is that the end times, when they do come, will happen in a lifetime. I mean, they'll happen quick. The rapture, the tribulation, people are not going to die. That's, that's going to all be fulfilled. So I began with some examples of revivals, and I truly hope and pray there will be one that will happen here in St. Clair Shores, but I want to tell you, a revival will begin in your own heart. It begins when you follow Jesus. When you commit, you go all in. And we all have to do our part. Everybody is a member of the body of Christ. We got fingers and toes and ears and eyes. And I'm doing my part. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to pray. And you have to do your part. You have to pray. You have to follow Jesus. You have to seek him with all your heart. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Our team's going to come up and pray, uh, play our final song. Spend this time in prayer, confessing to God. And if today you heard something and you thought to yourself, I need to get right with God. I want to get closer to God. This is an altar. You come up here during this song and you can bow down and pray. Our people from our prayer team will be up here. If you want to pray with them, you can pray with them. But use this time to draw closer to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. There's a lot to chew on for us, God. But as we go about our day, if we reflect on it, if we pray on it, your Holy Spirit will remind us of what's been said because it comes from your word. I pray, Lord, I pray that we will, we will respond to you in worship. If you convicted us about something, God, if we had some idea about who you are that's not right, I pray, Father, we will get right. And we will follow you and never turn back. In Jesus' name.